Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Let me uh, invite you to bring your conversations to a close. As Matthew said, if you don't know me, my name is Richard, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a pleasure to see you this morning. Pleasure to uh, welcome you if you are a guest visiting, first time. You're welcome to be here. Lots of good churches in BCP. Very grateful that you chose to be with us this morning. Um, Church, uh, one of the things we kind of always emphasize, is not a place you go. It's the people that we are. And I kind of just want to, before I start preaching this morning, just want to bring something to your attention. The reason I say that is because one of the, I guess, the paradigms that we use here at Gateway is that we are a family together. We are God's family. He's our father. We are his sons and daughters on mission together for him in the world. And he's given us this patch of territory to uh, be on mission for him, to help people to come to know Christ and to raise disciples and to see the church brought to full maturity. So that's good. I I think it's helpful sometimes just to kind of reiterate that fact. Sometimes you can go to uh, a church and it's a place you go and you get your Sunday morning spirituality, you sing some songs, you go home and you live your life. That's not what we are. We're a a family. We're we're kind of uh, knitted together in community in this place and that's how uh, we believe scripture reads. So Um, I do, from time to time, just want to bring some family news to you. And this morning, I just want to bring, again, some of you all, or most of you should know, our brother Morris Chibamba, who um, we, some months ago, started praying for. We should have been praying for him all along, who's still struggling with a kidney complaint and is in pretty serious need of a uh, kidney replacement as well, and is way down the list. And um, we're really trusting God for him. And um, he's not here this morning because he's really unwell. He's been in hospital again this week. And um, when one part of the body hurts, hurts, the whole body hurts, quite literally, that's a medical fact, but that's true for us as well as one body as well. So I'm just going to take a moment to pray for Morris, and again, I just want to ask you to pray for Morris and Grace and Luanga and Cece and blessings, wonderful family who bless us so much. Let's pray that God would meet his need, and again, this is such a hospitable, generous family. They love guests, and they love interactions, so can you just feel free as well to drop in on them, send them a text, send them love and blessing. But let's, let's pray for them together now, shall we? Lord, we, uh, we do so thank you that um, we come to you this morning as our Father who knows what your children need. You don't withhold good things from us. Lord, we ask again today for Morris, Lord, where this man is still waiting for a replacement kidney and still struggles with the day-to-day complications of dialysis and everything else that goes with it. Lord, I pray that you would, even now, wherever he is, just meet him in his place of need. And uh, Lord, I do pray healing would come to that man through supernatural intervention or the replacement of a kidney or whatever it is that you want to do in his life. We do pray for him and lift him up now in Jesus' name. Pray for grace and the rest of the family as well, for sustenance and uh, grace and perseverance as well. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Great. Thank you. It's good to pray for these things from time to time. So uh, most of you will know we are slowly working our way through uh, the gospel written by John, who was one of the 12 disciples and... uh, the close friend of Jesus. If you're new to the Bible, I always recommend starting by reading the book of John. It's, uh, I think it's helpful just to give you kind of a broad overview of Jesus Christ, both the things that he did and the person that he is, and see how it speaks to you and invites you into his story. That's actually how one of the reasons, one of the ways I came to faith. There are 21 chapters in the book of John. You could probably read the whole thing in, I don't know, an hour and a half, a couple of hours with a cup of coffee. Highly recommend you do it if you've never done that. And uh, today we're in chapter 13. The, the book of John is essentially composed of two halves. The, the first half is all about the life 
and the miracles of Jesus. And the second half is the 24-hour period leading up to the cross and then what happens thereafter. And the part that sort of stitches these two halves together is known as the farewell discourse. Uh, Usually chapters 13 or 14 through to 17, which is, as I said, where we find ourselves today. And the farewell discourse is what it actually sounds like. It's the actions and the teachings of Jesus on the night before the crucifixion as he essentially says farewell to his disciples. They have no idea what's coming the next day, but this is what Jesus is doing. So we're going to read the passage and then... um, I'm going to pull out a few things for us to think about in the passage, and hopefully these things will challenge us, as Scripture always should do. Scripture is alive. It should challenge us and invite us to respond to it in some way. So even now, as I prepare to preach, have your hearts opened to how God might speak to you. Matt's already said to us there's going to be an opportunity for prayer at the end of the service. I can't think of a a time in my life where I don't need prayer. Um, I'm sure that's true for you as well. So Be ready to respond to how God speaks to you this morning through his word. So we're going to read from John 13, verse 19 to 38. If you've got a church Bible, it might be handy to uh, flick through there, although the words will come up on the screen. And as we we do so, to give you some background context, as I said already, it's the night before the crucifixion. Jesus and the 12 disciples are at the Last Supper. I've already said it's called the Last Supper because uh, it's the Last Supper that Jesus will share with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And at this supper, as we heard last week, Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples. Jesus and the 12 are reclining at a dinner table. In those days, you would have kind of reclined at the table with your feet up like the Romans, sharing the Last Supper before Jesus is crucified. And he unwraps his robe and he wraps a towel around his waist and he drops to his knees and he puts himself in the lowly, lowliest of lowly positions, this great, saving, miracle-making king. The Son of God has humbled himself to the lowest place, And on his hands and his knees, he's gone around the room washing the disciples' feet. And in doing this, he's demonstrated in just a very small symbolic way what he will ultimately demonstrate and fulfill in a very big way the next day on the cross. That the greatest love of all is love that is expressed in sacrifice for your fellow man. Tonight, he'll submit and surrender himself and humble himself to them by washing their feet. And tomorrow, he'll show his love for them by surrendering his life for them and for all of us on the cross. And dramatically, he's about to explain to them that the way he's going to end up going to the cross the next day, the series of events that will take him from this dinner party that he's sharing with his friends to his death by crucifixion a few hours later, is through the betrayal of a friend, one of the 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot, who is sitting right there with them at the table, his close friend, a disciple. He will betray Jesus and sell him out to the Jewish and Roman authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And they will come and arrest him, and they'll try him, and they'll put him to death. The storm clouds, you've got to kind of get into the story a little bit, are, are, are really well and truly gathering over Jesus. So that's the background. Now let's read the passage. This is John 13, verse 19. These are the words of Jesus. In fact, Vicky's going to read the very words of Jesus. So these are the words of Vicky, but actually the words of Jesus. Come and read the words of Jesus, Vicky. Jesus predicts his betrayal 
and Peter's denial. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Thanks, Vix. It's a sobering story. So uh, we've had the washing of the feet, and then Jesus starts to speak. Verse 19, I'm telling you this stuff, he says, so that when it happens, when I'm betrayed and arrested and crucified, you'll believe. And what does he want them to believe? This is important. Verse 19, it tells us that I am who I am. That's a very particular turn of phrase. In Greek, that phrase is ego aimi. 
I am who I am. And it's, it's not a phrase that Jesus uses very often. It doesn't say that I am who I say I am. He says, I am who I am. But it's the same phrase that God the Father uses from the burning bush back in Exodus 3, the first time he reveals himself to Moses. If you recall that story, Moses sees a burning bush, and when he goes to investigate, he hears God calling his name, and he says, remove your sandals and come closer, and that he's calling Moses to go to Pharaoh and to demand the release of his people, who Pharaoh has kept in slavery for the last 400 years. And Moses is obviously stunned and afraid, and his first question is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and set the Israelites free, and who shall I say sent me? In Exodus 3.14, God says, tell them, I am who I am. That is my name. I am who I am. That is the name of God. That's what the Hebrew name Yahweh means. Or in Greek, as was more widely spoken at the time of Jesus, ego aimi. I am who I am. And so we see the whole farewell discourse just explode into life as Jesus washes their feet and says, okay, now I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to go to the cross. And when you see this, you'll know, ego aimi, that I am who I am. In other words, I'm God the Son, come to you, to love you, to serve you. And tomorrow, just like the I am of the burning bush who sets his people free from slavery, tomorrow, I, God the Son, will go to the cross and will set you free from a different sort of slavery. It's a slavery to sin and death and hell. And the way this will all happen is through one of you betraying me. And so John, who's writing this gospel, leans over and he puts his head on Jesus' chest and asks him, who on earth in this room would betray you, Master? And Jesus says, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread dipped in this bowl of wine. And then he takes the bread and he dips it in the wine and he gives it to Judas. And Judas looks Jesus in the face. He eats the bread and wine. And it says at that point, Satan entered into Judas. In, uh, in near Middle Eastern culture, for a host to take a, a piece of food and to offer it to the mouth of a guest was a sign of a deep love and hospitality. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Jesus? He's just washed Judas's feet. He's loved him and he's served him and he's walked with him for three years. And uh, he's, he offers him this choice piece of food in love. And Judas takes it. He accepts the gift and the kindness of Jesus. But he knows that within the next hour or so, he's going to sell Jesus out to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Think about the opening verses of this book. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Hallelujah. Jesus is the light that shines into the darkness. And Judas is face to face with the light of the world. He takes the bread. He takes all that Jesus has to offer. He takes the foot washing. But he has betrayal in his heart. He has darkness in his heart. It's been there all along. We see this actually in the previous chapter. In John 12, we're told that Judas's job was to hold the, the money bag for the disciples, the kind of the wallet. He was the bill payer when they went places and he bought food and so on. 
But in that same passage, we're also told that he was a thief that used to help himself to the money. This is a man who has lived with unrepentant, hard-hearted sin for a long time. And this should be a warning to any of us this morning who are living in secret or unrepentant or hardened sin. There, there comes this point at the Last Supper where Jesus holds out another opportunity for Judas to say yes to him and to receive him. And instead, and, and, uh, instead of receive me, I'm the light of the world, receive the light of the world, Judas, Judas, Judas tragically chooses the darkness. And as he does that, it's like he's burned all of his bridges. And in that moment, he's completely exposed to Satan's darkness in his life. And it was night. And Judas leaves the mill and he goes out and he sells Jesus to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And then he says something profound. Verse 31. Now I am glorified and God is glorified in me. We'll come back to that later, but it's incredible to think that this, this king, this savior, our God, ego aimi, that it is through betrayal and deception and death that he somehow receives his glory. We'll come back to that. And then verse 32, my children, I'm only with you for a little while longer. Very soon I must leave you, but I want to leave you with a final instruction before I go. Here's a new commandment. Love one another. That's it. In the same way that I've loved you, love one another. That's how the world will know that you're my disciples. It won't be because of your position in society or the family that you come from. It won't be because you've behaved yourself and lived a moral life. It won't be because you've made some articulate arguments about how to interpret a passage of Scripture on social media. It won't be because you've developed a strong doctrinal position on some or other matter. Actually, that stuff may well end up even undermining your witness to the world. The way the world will know that you're a Christian, the way that the world will look at us, Gateway, and know that we're different from the Rotary Club or the local book club is that we love one another the way that Jesus has loved us. Now, that should give us immediate cause for reflection, so I'm going to help us to do that by taking on a, a thought experiment. Imagine that you are someone else and that you are meeting yourself for the first time. Would you be able to say, my word, that person loves with a sacrificial love that I've never encountered before? And I suppose the next question would be, well, if not, why not? What, what course correction might you need to make? Be more deliberate about engaging the outsider or making time for the person who's a bit strange or really asking and listening and praying with a person who's in some sort of pain, praying for Brother Morris this week or being more generous with your time and money or opening your doors to your neighbor. Countercultural things in our day and age that should cause the world to look at you and go, wow. By the standards of this world, that's unusual, and it's beautiful. That's what Jesus is saying here. This new commandment that I give you, in fact, the final commandment that I give you, it's pretty simple. I've just demonstrated it to you by humbling myself and sacrificially washing your feet. Gateway, there's a reason why in 2023 we're still talking about this foot-washing story. It's because it's unusual, and it challenges us. It causes us to ask, in what ways am I surrendering myself and washing others' feet? At least it should be, because according to Jesus, that is the mark of being his follower and loving him. I think a lot about how we do this as individuals and as a church. As individuals, the responsibility is on each of us, not to get into petty arguments with one another, but also to outdo one another in being kind and considerate, especially to those people who you wouldn't naturally gravitate towards. 
bless one another. Think about this and let this be your motivation when you want to avoid someone in church or when they get on your nerves or when they unfairly criticize you and you want to lose it with, with them. When you love another person in the church, you're loving Jesus because you're loving his body. That's one of the reasons I wanted to make the point I did about being a family together at the start of the morning. So make every effort to be kind and to say encouraging things to one another and to care for one another at times of distress and to celebrate with one another at times of rejoicing. And as the world looks in on this, it will see something different about us and it will point them upwards to the one around whom we all coalesce, Jesus. My um, friend, some of you will know, Donnie Griggs, leads a church in North Carolina. He lives in uh, Moorhead City, which is a, it's a hurricane town. When the hurricanes hit, which they often do so tragically, and uh, homes are destroyed and lives are turned upside down, Donnie has become one of those people in town to whom everyone looks to coordinate and care for people in a time of crisis. He'll be the guy coordinating activities with the town council and the emergency services, and he'll be the one sitting and praying with people in their distress, and he'll be the one cooking the big pot of chili to feed families while they sort their lives out again. It's an unbelievable thing to observe, and it's a compelling and a disarming demonstration of a man who has received much from Jesus and is now wanting to give much to honor him and represent him in the world. Yeah. So why we do Gatehouse here every Thursday and Friday, Paul and Becky, sitting right there, guys, put your hands up for a second in case you don't know Paul and Becky, and team do such a wonderful job of opening this building and loving and caring for people on the fringes of society. Please speak to them about this after the service, if for no other reason, just to find out a bit more about how you can pray for it. But Gatehouse is already up and running. It's a, it's a vehicle, it's an easy vehicle by which you might be able to kind of volunteer and slot in and show this kind of sacrificial love to the world around you. I meet with all sorts of people through the week who are outside the church, the council and uh, different statutory bodies and charities, and, uh, and, and they're always a little bit stunned and confused by Gatehouse. I think they love it, but they're like, what, you, you don't charge people to come? Everything is free? And these aren't just, it's not just for people in your church, it's open to the whole community. They can't quite get their head around it. It's disarming to them, and it should be, because sacrificial love is utterly disarming. It's just one reason why the gospel is so compelling. What, Jesus died for me? And I can know life and peace with him now? And what's the cost? What, there isn't a cost? I just have to come? I don't have to earn my way in somehow? The gospel is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is the gospel. Sacrificial love is disarming because it's at the heart of the Christian faith. The other word we sometimes use to describe this is grace. That's why we're saved by grace and nothing else. So it's no wonder that he says that this is the way that the world will know that you're my followers. And then, of course, he says, I'm going away soon, and where I'm going, you can't follow. And of course, he's talking about going to the cross. And Peter stands up and says, no ways. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. In fact, I'll willingly lay down my life for you. To which Jesus replies, Peter, in just a few hours, you too will betray me. When you face the pressure of being my follower, you'll disown me three times, even tonight before the rooster crows. So that's, that's the passage. But there are two really key things that I want to go a bit deeper with today and to draw out and for us to think about and to learn from. And the first thing is this. Spiritual warfare is real, and we're in a battle. One of the phrases that's been used time and time again here at Gateway, I actually think I'm going to get a sign made and stick it up on the wall. 
And this is something I always want to tattoo on my own heart to remind myself. The Christian life is not like a battle. It is a battle. We should not be surprised by hardships and battles. Suffering is tied up with our faith. In the Western world, in the 21st century, we forget this because life is easy compared to the rest of the world. And money is plentiful. But repeatedly, we're told in Scripture, when you face hardships, when you face hardships, and there is a cost to being my disciple, and we are to rejoice when suffering comes because it's producing hope and perseverance in us, and that we are to pray that we will be delivered from evil and not succumb to trial when it comes. In fact, I think one of the ways of describing almost the whole New Testament is kind of, hold on, it's not easy, I've made a way. We see it so clearly in this passage. There's a battle raging around and inside Judas, and it's a battle that he loses. And it's important to see that he loses this battle because of unrepentant sin and false belief. The Bible teaches that we are in a battle. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, behind everything in this world, there is a spiritual influence. God is real. Satan is real. They aren't equal in opposites. God is victorious over Satan at the cross when Jesus overcame death and removed our sin. Satan was defeated, and we're simply living out the last days of the war. I've heard someone say that our, our present age is a little bit like those last days after World War II where the remaining Nazis who were defeated were still taking pot shots at the American and British occupying soldiers who'd occupied and freed Berlin. The war was over, but at some level the battle remained. Now, that's really important to note because one way that we overcome evil and hardships is by believing this that God is good, and that God is victorious, and that everything he says is true. If you stay close to that, you're going to be okay. But what we see with Judas is something quite different. He knows the truth. He knows God. He's been walking with him for the last three years, and yet he's living with unrepentant sin in his heart and a refusal to surrender to Jesus. For Judas, the battle is won not by doing it Jesus' way, but by doing it his way. And that will involve disbelief, and greed, and betrayal. And that's why it says he fully succumbs to Satan, because sin and disbelief and betrayal are the ways of Satan. Whereas Peter also gets it wrong, but his is a very human frailty. At the crucial moment, he's fearful for his life. But his heart attitude is to want to lay down his life for Jesus. He fails to follow through at the crucial moment because of human brokenness. But where Judas is hardened by sin against Jesus, Peter does actually desire to do what is right. And there's something important for us to learn here about spiritual warfare. To face battles and temptations, which we all will, is hard. To be fearful and weak in the face of them is human. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up about that, but we also have a choice. And that choice is this. You can believe truth or you can believe lies. 
In fact, one writer, one very prominent writer on the matter of spiritual warfare essentially boils it down to that. It's the belief of what is true and the refutation of what is lie. When you face these battles, you can believe the truth that God is good and he will hold you and he is doing something and forming something in you, even in your suffering, and that your best bet is to surrender to him. That's Peter's intention. Or you can choose that the best way to get ahead is to believe the lie that there is a better way than the way that Jesus offers and that there is a better truth than the truth of God's word. And this battle is real and it manifests in a number of ways. It manifests in sinful choices. You can believe the truth that trusting God for your soul satisfaction is good and that indulging in secret sin will harm you. Or you can succumb to Satan by indulging in sin and letting that shape you and watching as it grows within you until it explodes at the most public time like a hand grenade destroying you and those close to you. It might be that you're facing a a spiritual battle in a relationship or a physical or emotional situation that you're in. You can believe that God is working for your good and that as you trust him, he will hold on to you and do you good and show you kindness and faithfulness to you. In other words, you can believe truth Or you can disbelieve that stuff and you can accept the lie that God is against you and that Satan's truth, that your way is a better way. When we believe God and stand firm in his promises and wait patiently on him for the battle to pass, we resist evil and we overcome. Once again, believe God's truth, practice God's truth and refute Satan's lies and refuse to succumb to his temptations. That's why hearing and reading God's word is crucial. It's that you know and recognize the truth when you face the battle. That's why prayer is crucial, because prayer is closeness and relationship with God to whom you can run and be safe. This is what was going on with Judas. He he chose to rob from the money bag. He went his own way. So he believed the lie that money would satisfy him and that amassing it to the detriment of his friends was a good thing to do. And it's only a short hop from there to believing that 30 pieces of silver were more valuable than accepting and believing Jesus. And so he opposed God's truth and succumbed to Satan's lie. And so in verse 30, we see he went out in every way. And for Judas, it was night In every way, the light had shone, but he preferred the darkness. That night, as the meal was being eaten, two people were being tested by circumstance. Judas was being tempted by money, and Jesus was being tempted, tested to persevere through his own troubled spirit to the cross. One failed by believing the lie. The other trusted God and fulfilled God's plans perfectly through him. Believe God. Believe truth. Believe that Jesus has overcome Satan and that he's aware of our struggle and that he sympathizes with us and that he fights our battles and refuse to be moved when test and trial come. And pray for him to apply these truths to our hearts and into our actions when you face trial and temptation and spiritual attack and weariness. That is how we fight and overcome our battles. So if our first point is that spiritual warfare is real and we're in a battle, here's our second point. Victory is real, and it's found at the cross. This passage of Scripture, just like every other moment in the whole canon of Scripture, at some level always points us in the same direction. It points to a Father who made us and loves us 
and desires to be with us and to have relationship with us forever. And the way that this is made possible, in spite of our sin and our rejection of him, is exactly where this passage is heading. It's the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ as he lays down his life for us on the cross. We talk about the cross here every week, and I never want to change that, because the cross is the high point of God's story with mankind. And that's because at the cross, all that separated us from God was dealt with. All of our sin and shame, all of our rebellion against God, the distance we'd created between us and Him was all dealt with at the cross as Jesus removes our sin and bridges the gap between us and God and invites us back into relationship with God. It's grace. It's amazing grace. And it's in relationship with God that we find victory for every other issue in our lives. Since closeness with God is where we find life and healing. It's where we become the best version of ourselves because the best version of ourselves was built and designed and brought into life specifically for relationship with God. That's why you and I were made. And that's why we say that chains are broken and people are set free at the cross. So that's the scandalous invitation of the cross to you and I today. Come and know relationship with God and freedom and peace at no cost to you because Jesus has been to the cross for you. The cross is the focal point of what sacrificial love looks like and it's the focal point of all God's goodness towards you. Amazing grace. The night before the cross, Jesus, knowing that he would be betrayed by a brother, we already said this, he wraps a towel around his waist, on his hands and knees, he washes their feet nonetheless. Sacrificial love. He offers Judas bread and wine, intimate closeness to the very one who'd betray him. Sacrificial love. Jesus offered his cheek to the snake that he knew would bite him, willingly. Sacrificial love. He embraced the traitor so that he could go to the cross to pardon traitors. It's crazy. Sacrificial love. That's what he is like. When Judas went out into the night to betray Jesus, Jesus said, now has come the time for me to be glorified. How on earth was that for his glory? Back in the book of Exodus again, when Moses is eventually sent to lead the Israelites by God, Yahweh, the I am, the ego aimi, he said to God, show me who you are. Show me your glory. And God says, okay, this is what that will mean. I will place you in a cleft, in a rock, and I'll show you my back because no one can look at my face and live. But if you want to see my glory, this is what it will mean. Exodus 33:19. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. That's how he displays his glory. He shows us his goodness. He causes all his goodness to pass in front of us. And that, brothers and sisters, is the cross. The glory of Christ on the cross is God showing us all his goodness. The goodness of God to you is the cross. The cross is where the perfect justice of a holy God meets the perfect mercy of a compassionate God. That's what the death of Jesus on the cross means. Perfect justice and perfect mercy meet at the cross. All the goodness of God passes before us at the cross. Perfect sacrificial love. He came to be betrayed 
to save those who betrayed him. His life laid down for you and I. The relational rupture between us and God mended. Salvation, life, freedom, peace, freely on offer today. For the first time for you maybe, or maybe you just need to come to him and drink afresh again. That's also okay. He has caused all his goodness to pass before you. And he offers it again to you today. In, uh, in a moment, Matthew will come and explain various ways in which we can physically respond to this. It's important that we physically and symbolically respond to this this morning as well as we ask Jesus into our hearts again and ask for his sustaining grace in our lives again and look to him again for all his goodness past before us. But let's pray first. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you again, and we'll always thank you, Lord. We'll live lives of worship for what I'm about to thank you for. It's the cross. It's always the cross. It's always the cross. Your sacrificial love, your love for us, your life laid down, that you would look at us in our sin and our shame and our disgrace and our rebellion and our traitorous hearts, our betrayal, the fact that we prefer the darkness, the fact that we've gone out into the night from you and say, come, come, I'm going to the cross. Father, you would say, I'm getting my kids back. Lord, I thank you so much for the cross and what it represents. You've got your kids back. You've got your family back. Lord, I thank you that this morning we can gather in your presence and thank you for all that you've done, Jesus, to take away our sin and shame, bring us into relationship with you again. And I pray that you would help us to apply all that means to our life today, whether that be in healing or freedom or salvation. I ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.